0: You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 28th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori
1: House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme... Just a few days ago, they had another air raid siren. They went to the shelter and it coincided with electricity blackouts. So they were there in the darkness just with a torchlight.
0: That was Monocle's Carlotta Rebello in Kyiv. We'll ask whether Russia's foreign ministry has shifted its war objectives in Ukraine. Also ahead, the author and academic Isabel Hilton will be telling us what's driving extremely rare protests in Tibet. Plus, we'll have an update on Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And then, Monocle's Andrew Muller tells us about some of the week's stranger goings-on.
2: Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had bolted back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices.
0: All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, has said that Russia has launched dozens of drone attacks on Ukraine in recent days. It follows a warning from the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, that the world is facing its most dangerous moment since the conclusion of the Second World War. Monocle 24's Carlotta Rabello is currently in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. This is what she had to tell me a little
1: earlier. We were all prepared here to the potential of spending a night in the bomb shelter. There had been a few air raid sirens throughout the day in Kiev, but those didn't last for long, about half an hour. But overnight at around 1.20 a.m., the air raid sirens went off. The mood in the city was very much to take it seriously because, you know, Vladimir Putin had been speaking earlier that day and all the talks that have been happening over the past few days about a dirty bomb uh, being accused on both sides. And just as a precaution, we went to the bomb shelter. Uh, It was quite interesting to see how different and how much more seriously people are taking it now compared to last time I was here back in July. And it's in the subtle signs. Last time in July, there was also an instance where we had to spend a few hours at a bomb shelter overnight. And it very much came across back then as, you know, just a nuisance to have to leave your room and nothing is going to happen. What's the point? And this time, everyone that was down there, you know, had uh, their go bag, their grab bag. So the bag that has, you know, all your documents, enough stuff to sustain you for a few days if needed, a warm jacket. So people are going to the shelters prepared to the eventuality that they might stay there for longer. One of the um, fellow journalists that was in the bomb shelter with me last night, um, who has been in Kyiv for the past two weeks or so, told me that um, if just a few days ago, they had another air raid siren. They went to the shelter and It coincided with electricity blackouts. So they were there in the darkness just with a torchlight. So there's that added element as, you know, the electricity grid remains uh, volatile as Ukraine starts to rebuild from the strikes that Russia did earlier this month.
0: That was Carlotta Rabello speaking to me earlier. Well, let's unpack this further now with Sergei Radchenko, who's professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Sergei's written extensively on Russian foreign policy, and he joins me now. Sergei, what was the gist of Putin's speech yesterday?
3: Well, the speech was nothing new to me. I listened to it um, and I heard absolutely nothing that he had not said previously, same complaints about Western hegemony, same complaints about uh, or same claims that the West is declining and the new emerging world is multipolar. So in that regard, uh, you know, the speech was billed as something new. Certainly the Kremlin claimed that it would be new, but there was nothing new of substance there.
0: Mm, he did seem a little unclear on the nuclear question, directly contradicting himself.
3: Well, there was an interesting, there were a couple of interesting exchanges on the nuclear question. Um, Someone asked whether this indeed was um, uh, something that Russia was considering. So we have to remember that this was, Putin was speaking to an audience and the audience were allowed to ask questions. And one of the people in the audience asked whether Russia was considering nuclear uh, strikes in Ukraine. Uh, And that, of course, comes in the wake of Putin's threats, very unclear, very vague, but threats nonetheless to use uh, all means necessary to defend uh, Russia's territorial integrity. And that, of course, in the context of the annexation and extension of Russian official frontiers from Russia's standpoint into parts of eastern Ukraine. So Putin basically repeated his previous assertions. He said that uh, Russia would only use nuclear weapons as dictated by its doctrine. Now, doctrine—the doctrine itself says that Russia can only use nuclear weapons if the very existence of the state is in question, and Putin alluded to that. But at the same time, he said that it might use nuclear weapons to defend Russian territorial integrity. So it wasn't new. He said something unclear like this before, potentially contradicting the Russian nuclear doctrine. But in the end, the doctrine itself is slightly contradictory when it comes to these things.
0: You mentioned questions from the audience, and I wonder what the tone was, because there did seem to be some some quite uh, probing questions, but presumably those would have had to have been uh, on a pretty in line.
3: So uh, there was an interesting moment where the person who was conducting the conversation, uh, Fyodor Lukyanov, on stage with Putin, asked him what he thought about that question that you know Putin had said some years ago that what happens in the case of in the case of nuclear war. And back then, I think it was four years ago, he he jokingly, quote unquote, jokingly said that they, i.e., the West. Uh, will just grow, but we will go to heaven. And so Lukyanov, the moderator, asked, uh, "Well, do you do you still think that this will happen?" And Putin paused for a very long period of time, perhaps you know, to create a sense of uncertainty. And Lukyanov, at that point, said, "Well." You know, this uh, This makes me worried, but it seems that Putin was playing a kind of game with his answer and uh, answers to the questions that were being posed. Again, there was nothing new, but he was trying to create uncertainty about Russia's actions.
1: Mm.
0: So what is Russia trying to achieve here? I mean, was that made clear in any way?
3: Well, Russia, it seems to me, is on the defensive at the moment, and that's just the reality on the ground. The Ukrainians have been pushing uh, pushing Russia out of uh, the territories that Russia had occupied since February 24th, and indeed out of some of the territories that Putin has since annexed uh, and claims as his own. So Russia is digging in. I think the idea now is to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive and perhaps Create uh, serious barriers to further Ukrainian advance that may require further retreats, and indeed, the Russian military command have been talking about that potentially making difficult decisions about, for example, abandoning the city of Kherson, which was one of those big cities taken over by Russia uh, early on in the war. So it it seems fair to say at this point that Putin has given up his great ambition of uh, controlling all of Ukraine, which he ostensibly had early on in. In this conflict, not because he doesn't want to, but simply because he can't, simply because the Ukrainians have been fighting very well with Western support, of course, mainly with American support, with American weapons, and also because the Russian military has underperformed significantly. So, at the moment I think his strategy is digging in in eastern Ukraine, holding on to that territory, especially the land bridge uh, to Crimea, which is. Very important, while also striking Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, including, of course, the power grid in order to exhaust the population. And this is another thing he has been doing, Russia has been doing in recent weeks, leading to blackouts across all of Ukraine as Ukraine heads into a very grim, very bleak winter
0: and he didn't offer any more to justify why he's doing this
3: well his his whole take on 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 this is that You know, Russia is defending its so-called sovereignty. It's not willing to play by American rules and and so on. And it was very strange to hear this claim because, of course, Russia is invading a sovereign country. Russia is violating Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. But the bottom line is we have heard it all before from Putin. Putin projects a lot of the uh, sins that he's committing himself onto the West and claims that the West is doing these to Russia. And in part, he's speaking to the domestic audience who are sufficiently brainwashed to buy this. Uh, And in part, of course, he's also trying to win over the, uh, quote unquote, global south. That's another thing he tries to do in his speech to win support in the global south for Russia's position.
0: Uh, And finally, do those within the Kremlin believe in Putin's alternative reality? I mean, he's either an idiot, mad or deliberately lying, surely.
3: Well, so that is an interesting question. You know, there's a Russian joke uh, to the effect that you can only, you can, uh, when you have flu, uh, a bunch of you can have a flu or cold. But when you go mad, it's only one person that goes mad. You cannot have collective madness. But I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily so sure. It's very difficult to read the minds of those people in Putin's immediate circle. I might. take, and this is just a gut feeling, is that a lot of those people simply have no choice but to endorse Putin. We have seen practically no defection, simply because it's too dangerous, and simply because they don't really have any alternatives. You know, A lot of those people are sanctioned in the West and so on and so forth. But that does not mean that if Putin is removed, or maybe he dies, or something happens to him, uh, that people that uh, like the collective leadership that comes to power after that, that they will pursue necessarily the same. Uh quote-unquote, crazy policies with regard to the West. I think its it'll be a very interesting moment, uh, if and when, and actually it will come, of course, it will come. But when it comes, it will be a very interesting moment for the West because there will be an opportunity, I think, to engage with Russia, to see if Russia can make viable concessions, real concessions, in favour of some return concessions by the West. Uh, so that will be the moment to engage. But at the moment, it seems that they are rallying around Putin. I mean, you know, the Sileviki, the, the power ministries, the, the foreign ministry, etc. And very much endorse the narrative that he prefers.
0: Sergey, thank you very much indeed. That was Russian foreign policy expert Sergei Radchenko. Now, here's Monocle24's Marcus Hippie with the day's other news headlines.
2: Thanks Georgina. The world's richest man Elon Musk has completed his $44 billion takeover of Twitter. Musk tweeted, the bird is freed, which is believed to be a reference to closing the deal. We'll have more on this story a bit later on today's programme. Northern Ireland is on course for another assembly election after a deadline for restoring devolved government passed. It's thought the Northern Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harris may call an election today rather than attempt to delay it. And it's been announced that India's Tata Group and Airbus are to begin making military aircraft in the country. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi will inaugurate the new manufacturing unit in the western state of Gujarat on Sunday. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina.
0: Thank you, Marcus. People in Tibet have taken to the streets in recent days to protest against Beijing's strict COVID-19 measures. Demonstrations in the autonomous Chinese region are extremely rare. The last major protests in Tibet were brutally suppressed by Chinese authorities in 2008. Well, I'm joined now by the China expert, Isabel Hilton. Uh, Isabel is also the author of The Search for the Panchen Lama, which is about the power struggle between China and Tibet. Isabel, many thanks for joining us. And, And that's what I'd like to start with, is that power struggle. Tibet used to be an independent nation. How does the relationship... With China work?
4: Well, of course, China would say Tibet uh, has always been a part of China. This is not really the case. You know, Tibet was largely an independent Central Asian state. In fact, in the Tang Dynasty, the Tibetans were quite sort of military and they they raided and occupied uh, Xi'an in China uh, for, for some time. So but under the Qing dynasty, there was a, which was a Manchu dynasty. There was a, a, a sort of priest patron relationship in which the Dalai Lama was regarded as the spiritual superior of the Qing emperor, and the Qing emperor extended protection to Tibet against um, invasion, for example, from Nepal or by the Gurkhas, which 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 happened periodically, or against other encroachment. Come uh, 1949 and the People's Republic. Uh, the uh, uh, Tibet had declared independence when the Qing Empire fell. Um, Mao Zedong and other Chinese leaders before him had had the ambition to recapture Tibet. And there was an invasion uh, by the PLA in, in the 50s. Tibet was occupied and Tibet then became uh, theoretically an autonomous region. Um, increasingly, however, uh, there has been uh, Chinese uh, uh, attempt to homogenise, to bring under control, in inward migration, banning of Tibetan language, and all of that. The Dalai Lama fled to India in in the late 50s after an uprising against uh, against Chinese rule. So it's
0: been a story of increasing control by China. Mm. And so let's bring it right up to the present and look at this lockdown. How strict is it, and mm. how is it impacting the lives of citizens? We're hearing truly terrible stories. Well, the lockdown- Lockdown is, you know, as severe in
4: Tibet as it has been elsewhere. I don't think Tibet is exceptional for that, except that this lockdown has lasted since August. And what's interesting about this, you're absolutely right that there was a major uprising in 2008, but that was a Tibetan uprising which um, began in Lhasa and then spread across pretty much all the Tibetan world, which included large parts of Qinghai province and so on. This, the discontent, appears to be among the Han population, the Chinese population of Lhasa, who are largely rather poor migrant workers who've come in from places like Sichuan, neighboring provinces looking for economic opportunity and you know both in Xinjiang and in in Tibet we have seen a lot of inward migration of uh, of of han uh, workers. And these are people with very few resources. You know, you don't go lightly and live in Lhasa. It's at high altitude. Most Han Chinese feel uncomfortable there. So these are people who've come there in order to, you know, make a living. Once you lock people like that down over weeks and months, they have no income, they can't get home, they run out of food, they still have expenses. And so the the rage that we've seen in this rather rare footage from Lhasa is Largely about that. And in that sense, it's very similar to the kind of rage we've seen in in Shanghai or in other places which have experienced this kind of lockdown. Mm.
0: I mean, we're hearing reports of people jumping out of windows, of people facing starvation. Is that backed up? Well, that's certainly consonant with, with things that have happened
4: elsewhere because, you know, even in Shanghai, you know, a far more sophisticated and well-resourced city, when the lockdown happened, people found they couldn't get, they, they weren't allowed out to shop, the shops had closed and they couldn't get food. So yes, I mean, it's entirely possible that in Lhasa, which is much less well-resourced and these are far less well-resourced people, that, you know, a certain despair has set in and people certainly have been hungry in other instances of of these very savage lockdowns. So I, I think it's it's
0: entirely plausible that this should be happening in Lhasa. The protesters warned Chinese officials that they would set off a fire if they refused to lift COVID lockdown restrictions. As we know, Tibet sadly has a history of self-immolation. Is that what they meant, or was it metaphorical?
4: I don't think that's what they meant. I think I think it was either more metaphorical, or they they were probably proposing to set fire to a party headquarters. You know, self-immolation is not particularly a Han tradition, and it's uh, it's been a kind of mark of despair uh, amongst Tibetans. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, I don't think that's what they meant at all.
0: I wonder how protesters are able to go on the street, given the severity of the lockdown, and how it's being reacted to by the authorities. Well, uh, that appears to be
4: you know safety in numbers, if you like. You know, this is a very large demonstration from the from the footage that we've seen, and. So far, it's it's been more of a standoff than a repression. Of course, Tibet is very tightly controlled. Chen Chuang Guo, who was the former party secretary of Tibet, was the same man who moved on to Xinjiang and instituted the very savage repression in Xinjiang. Mm. So the system in Tibet, which he in, inaugurated, was one of, you know, a, a police station every few hundred yards, surveillance, digital surveillance, and so on. So if you want to lock down Lhasa, you know, you have the means at your disposal. So I think if they haven't... If they haven't repressed these crowds violently, it's because they want to, you know, I suppose, keep the situation under control without having a massive confrontation with people who are Han Chinese rather than Tibetans. They can't easily be labelled subversive or separatists or any of the things that you might call an angry Tibetan crowd.
0: A, a couple of possibly unknowables to end on. I, I wonder if you if you could tell us the extent of COVID infections in Tibet and if you have any idea what the likely conclusion of these protests might be. Well, I think that...
4: Um, these lockdowns don't happen because uh, infections are widespread. They happen as soon as a case is detected. So I haven't, I mean, there is some um, COVID in Tibet, but I'm really not clear that it's extensive. And certainly in none of these cases has the rate of infection been at a level that we would consider would justify a lockdown. But that is the zero COVID policy. The zero COVID policy dictates that as soon as you detect any case, even if it's an asymptomatic case, then you have to lock down um, the city. And that was something which I think people had rather hoped might might, you know, be lifted or relaxed after the 20th Party Congress. But I think there's very little sign of that. So what I suspect will happen is that there will be a process of negotiation in Lhasa uh, where perhaps, you know, if there are no active cases, that people might be allowed to return to Switzerland. If I were trying to manage this situation in Lhasa, I would try and disperse that crowd. And if they want to go back to their Hometowns and, and home villages, let them do so because they're far more dangerous as an angry mob concentrated in Lhasa than they are dispersed.
0: Isabel, thank you very much indeed. That was Isabel Hilton and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The
5: Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs is a smart guide to starting and running your own business from the people behind Monocle magazine. It's a handbook designed to encourage, inspire and perhaps even gently prod its readers into taking the plunge and starting something for themselves. Inside, you'll find canny case studies of 100 businesses that succeeded, ideas on where to base your business, and advice from more than 50 industry experts on everything from finding funding to scaling up. There are ideas and opportunities for everyone from a first-timer with a dream to seasoned entrepreneurs mulling over their next venture. This isn't about getting rich quick, but it is for those interested in building something with integrity, making something that lasts, something you'd be proud to pass on to the next generation. Isn't it time you turn the page? Let's get started then. The Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs. Go to monocle.com forward slash shop and order your copy today.
0: You're back with The Briefing on Monocle24. I'm Georgina Godwin. We're going to get the latest on Elon Musk completing his $44 billion takeover of Twitter now. I'm joined by Josh Coles, who's a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Uh, Hello to you, Josh. Thanks for coming on the show again. This deal was very shaky. Finally, it went through. Was that only in order to avoid a court case?
6: Good afternoon, Georgina. Yes, I think that's a reasonable summation, given the attempts that Musk has made over the course of the summer to seemingly get out of the deal, uh, accusing Twitter at various points of being overrun with bots and uh, various other reasons why he might not want to buy it. But he has essentially, I think, been forced to do that. And the $44 billion that he's spending on uh, on Twitter is, is quite a bill um, for what seemed like a fairly frivolous plan uh, at the start of the year. Um, But that has been how Musk has tended to operate during the course of his uh, tech career. Um, Never quite sure where the line between uh, seriousness and irony is. I fear that line will continue to be tread quite uh, interestingly uh, with Musk's own content moderation approach to Twitter now that he owns it. But I think at least we do now know we have some some certainty about the fact that Musk is the legal owner of Twitter and Twitter is now once again uh, private and off the stock market. Mm.
0: Uh, and it uh, was there an act of revenge in the fact that the, the, the first thing he did was fire some top personnel?
6: Yes, he's clearly clearly come in there and uh, and set things straight as he sees it with the executives amongst the people he's fired as the chief executive uh, as well as the head of trust and safety online which i think again points towards the uh, the fact that musk will be taking quite a different approach to content mor- moderation potentially more open uh, and more laissez-faire approach to content moderation now that he owns the site so it's very clear i think that he's attempting to stamp his authority on the platform. What that means in practice, I think is going to be very interesting to see. Mm.
0: Now, one of the people fired had been responsible for banning Donald Trump from Twitter. Do you think the former US president's likely to return to the platform?
6: Well, that has been something that Musk has pledged that that, uh, permanently banned users will be allowed back on so I suppose we should assume that will be the case with all the uh, fun that that will bring, I'm sure, uh, to Twitter when, if and when Trump does return. I do think it's worth reflecting, though, on the slightly more uh, hesitant tone by his standards that Musk took uh, after announcing the deal, uh, pledging to make uh, Twitter the best place, the best advertising platform in the world. That, that was, I think, an attempt to reassure um, the you know, advertising investors and others who, who, um, who, who sell things on Twitter and who use Twitter. Uh, that it will not become the hellscape, which I think many fear that it will come with the return to figures like Trump and also other uh, right-wing provocateurs as well uh, and, and many other uh, problematic users. So that's the balance I think that Musk is going to have to try to tread, because still Twitter relies uh, a huge amount on its revenue, uh, on its advertising for its revenue, I think about 90% at least over the last year. So it's not like uh, Musk can afford to just turn off the Twitter advertising tap. Or, uh, or, or give any uh, reason for advertisers to stop selling their wares on Twitter. That would be a very explosive move, I think, even even by Musk's standards. So he will, despite what he says, he will need to balance, I think, the interests of k- creating a kind of a relatively safe and harmonious platform uh, with keeping advertisers online, uh, as well as you know sticking to what he's seen to pledge with respect to so-called free speech on the platform.
0: Josh, thank you very much indeed. That was Josh Coles, and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And finally on today's programme, it's time to join Monocle 24's Andrew Muller for his take on what the past seven days
2: have taught us. We learned this week the identity of the United Kingdom's new Prime Minister. Do not adjust your preferred audio device. You have not mistakenly downloaded the "What We Learned" monologue we wrote eight weeks back, nor have we mistakenly uploaded same. Though it would be colossally ironic, of course, if you or we had. It's like rain. It it's a free ride. The years I have waited for this moment, mallet. We will now be needing some eerie fortune-teller sort of music. Because eight weeks ago in that What We Learned monologue, we made the following observation, the linking gag of which now appears imbued
1: with eerie personage.
2: We learned, after a Conservative Party leadership election, which may have taken more of our time than her Premiership will, that Liz Truss had nudged out her final remaining rival, Rishi Sunak. You will have to take our word for this, as that monologue was never broadcast due to national mourning-y reasons prevailing at the time, but it's in there. It is. You can't prove it wasn't. Okay, Okay. fair enough, but let's move on quickly. I'll give you that, I guess. Anyway. We learned that the UK's latest Prime Minister of the Month is Rishi Sunak, who has struggled heartwarmingly into 10 Downing Street from supremely unlikely origins. He is only the second UK Prime Minister to have attended Winchester College. (laughs) Indeed. The first old Wickhamist Prime Minister was Henry Addington, 1st Viscount Sidmouth, who served from 1801 to 1804. He was the son of a doctor who became a conservative politician after marrying into money, and whose dogmatic pursuit of a low-tax economy was continually thwarted by pointless and inane quarrelling with Europe. Verily, times have changed. And we learned that the thinly veiled subtext of Sunak's premiership was to be, I told you so, you morons. Some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will
6: or bad intentions. Quite
2: the opposite, in fact. That mistakes Nonetheless. Listeners whose will to pay attention to British politics has not terminally ebbed amid recent nonsenses will recall that Sunak was the candidate passed over eight ludicrous weeks ago by the Conservative Party's membership in favour of last month's Prime Minister and future pub quiz answer Liz Truss, who checked out, as in fairness many of us have, when given the boot before the end of our probationary period with a harumph of I was right all along, to hell with you all, it's your life you'll be sorry when I'm famous.
0: From my time as Prime Minister, I am more convinced than ever that we need to be bold and confront the challenges that we face. As the Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare, it's because we do not dare that they are difficult.
2: So we also learned what last Tuesday's entry was on the the quote-of-the-day calendar truss got from a barely-interested aunt last Christmas. We learned, however, that the new broom which Sunak claimed to be brandishing was arguably somewhat thin of bristle. Sweeping noises. You're doing literal sweeping noises. Righto. For we learned that the headline of a startlingly minimal cabinet reshuffle was the overturning of arguably the only sensible decision his predecessor made, i.e. sacking Home Secretary Suella Braverman following a security breach. Braverman, whose spoken rhetoric generally sounds like it was composed using a Daily Mail headline-themed magnetic poetry kit, was restored to the Home Office after six days in the cooler. So we learned that Braverman's legions of subversive treacherous and imaginary enemies
1: It's the Labour Party It's the Lib Dems It's the Coalition of Chaos It's the Guardian Reading Tofu Eating Wokarati Dare I say The Anti-Growth Coalition
2: Must now regroup Come on Big Tofu You can do this We also learned something of the future plans of the man who it turned out would not be king. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had bolted back from his most recent holiday when his old job became available, displaying an alacrity and commitment that generally escaped him when actual crises interrupted his loafing during his stints in various ill-deserved offices. We learned, or at least had to take his word for it, that while Johnson had necessary support from his fellow MPs, he had selflessly decided that returning to number 10 would be inopportune. At which we learned that roughly one billion people on Twitter all thought they were the first to think of the gag about the rarity of Boris Johnson pulling out of anything. He has lots of children, do you see? <coughs> we wouldn't open with it either. And indeed, and we'd appreciate due credit for this, we didn't. We learned that instead, Johnson now intended to work upon his prime ministerial memoirs no, don't. No. 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 and his long-delayed book about Shakespeare. No, please don't. Please, don't. No. don't oh, God. Andrew, no. An understandable response. It seems that you too have already learned via Johnson's dreadful previous book on Winston Churchill that Johnson has a predilection for writing his subjects as exceedingly thinly veiled avatars of himself. We learned that we must therefore be braced for Johnson's self-regarding analyses of such characters as Henry V, widely traduced as self-indulgent dilettante, rises to statesman-like heights during European conflict, Julius Caesar, visionary leader stabbed in the back by vindictive bastards who'd be nothing without him, and Othello, distinguished chieftain with much younger wife led to downfall by manipulative treachery of ungrateful lieutenant. We can't wait either, and in keeping with the unusually erudite tone of this week's monologue, would now like a sound effect evoking an exit pursued by a bear. Run away! One for the winter's tail heads there. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Thank you very much to Andrew. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time and we'll have much more news and analysis across the weekend here on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening.